0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Well, thank you, music team. Uh, I would invite you now to open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 14. We're going to look at the concluding part of that. And while you're thumbing there, I wanted to show you four pictures of India we didn't have, but one of them is on the bulletin. So that is a perfect example what I wanted to show you. So John Paul's on the far left, which is what he sent in an email. Those are the widows that he uh, he takes care of. What those ladies are holding in their hands is the equivalent of a voucher. GBF money, kind of like Monopoly money, but it's real in terms of a provision made for them and their most basic needs. These are the very ladies that we're going to be visiting in October. So uh, we have three other pictures like that. The sign, thank you for your financial help. Dear Grace Bible Fellowship USA, From notice the title of their church, Grace Bible Church. John Paul didn't have a name of his church that's been around. His dad started over 50 years ago. They didn't have a name of a church, just church. And when he came out here and spent time with us and went to the Shepherds Conference, realized, wow, everybody's got a name. Went back home and named his church Grace Bible Church of India, after our church, and then named the Skyping that we're doing, as I'm teaching the pastors now for seven, eight months, he named it Grace Bible College, Grace Bible College, and Pastor McManus, you are the president. thank, Thank you for the promotion, I appreciate that. So anyway, that's just a dear, sweet picture from John Paul, so, well with that, we also have Children's Church today, so if you're a fifth grader, or younger, and you'd like to be a part of Children's Church, go ahead and... Take your Bible, if you have one, back to the lobby there. It looks like Mr. Aaron, is that, are you the teacher of the day? How exciting. And Mrs. Kathy? And uh, kids, you may be dismissed for Children's Church. Do you have any customers? Do we have customers for Children's Church? Okay, and we'll catch up with the kiddos a little later. We, While the kids are going to have uh, time together studying the Word together, we're going to look at one of the most controversial passages in the Bible. How's that? Did that wake you up? You didn't have your coffee today? You don't need coffee when you're reading First Corinthians 14, 34 through 40. Uh, and I'm not kidding. So that's what I want to cover. Let's go ahead and uh, follow along as I read 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 40, as Paul concludes this section. And he writes, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Some translations say, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. So that is our passage. First Corinthians, I told you this a few times, especially when we began the book. First Corinthians poses some Difficult challenges for the exegete and the Bible interpreter, and just the Christian as you're reading through. It probably has more interpretive challenges in it than any book in the New Testament. That's been my personal experience. Um, then it also has some controversial ones, and I would say that this one right here, 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty-four through forty, is the most controversial uh, in this book, maybe in the in the New Testament. Maybe in the Bible, because it talks about women. And in light of our culture and the growing influence of feminism in the world and in our culture, it flies in the face of a traditional biblical understanding of the roles of men and women. The controversy uh, is understood. So we're going to look at it. Um, notice verse 34. Oh, the title of the sermon put there on your bulletin is, "Women." Prophecy and Tongues. That was a very deliberate, thought-out title I put there for this passage. Because I think it gives the proper balance. Because most folks, or not most, but many, dealing with this passage might just focus in on the word women and become myopic and lose perspective. It's not just about women. This passage, This uh, justifiably so, is about women, prophecy and Tongues Actually, there's more emphasis on prophecy in tongues than there is about women in this passage. We're going to see why. So we've got to maintain a right perspective. But look at verse 34. Hold on to your skirt or your shoes or your socks or your hat when I read verse 34. The women are to keep silent. The women are to keep silent. Now, if you are a woman here today and you have never heard this Bible verse before, I, I apologize. Uh I'm not apologizing for the Bible. I apologize that you've never heard it before because it can be a a wee bit shocking or alarming or whoa. Really? Is that really what that says? Is that really a command? Are you sure that was translated properly? What are the actual real Greek words there? Can it be so? Let me read it again. Verse 34. The women are to keep silent in the churches. That's what it says. Then it gets worse. Um, verse 35. For, well, why are the women supposed to be keep silent in the churches? Paul gives the reason at the end of verse 35. For it is improper. For it is shameful. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Whew. Hot potato, hot potato. Well, the first thing I want to do is dispel... Commonly held wrong interpretations and applications of that phrase. Okay, you ready? And this, this, some of these might even be how you think. Currently, maybe some of these things I'm about to uh, expose are things that a, a church taught and believed that you were a part of. That was true of me. I was a pastor. I was an elder. I was um, a faculty member of a Christian school or two. That actually held to some of the views I'm about to read to you. Actually, uh I had a professor in seminary who actually believed some of these views. And I these following twelve views, I'm I'm I don't believe that they are that's what they're talking about. I don't think that is the point of what First Corinthians fourteen thirty-four. But nevertheless, we've got to deal with it. Women are to keep silent, says thirty-four, and then here are the twelve common wrong views that I have experienced in my own Christian life, one way or another, one form or another. Uh, one, number one, uh, people apply this and say that this means that women can't talk at all at church, even in the lobby. I guess you could talk in the ladies' restroom because we can't monitor you there. <laughs> the guys can't. Really? This is a view held by some Christians that I'd say, no, that's not what it's talking about. Uh, Another wrong view. Women can't question their husband at home. Can't ask him questions. Can't. Based on this verse. Uh, Some also say that women can't have an opinion at home about anything. And that the husband is supposed to make all the decisions. I'm not kidding. I have counseled Christian women and couples on this over the years. And they just had an understanding in their mind that I think was biblically unbalanced and based on this verse. The woman wasn't allowed to talk at home, wasn't allowed to say anything, wasn't allowed to give an opinion from the color of the drapes. The husband is going to decide the color of the drapes. Really? How scary is that? We're talking Adam's family. Um, deciding uh what dishes they're gonna have, when I mean just every decision was deferred to the husband because supposedly that's what the Bible mandated because this verse women are, are to keep silent notice I, I'm very intentional here women are to keep silent that's so what people will often quote notice they're not quoting the whole verse and they apply this outside the context of the church women are to keep silent uh, some also say that use this to say that women can't confront their husbands I've had to deal with this in counseling um, actually many times Christian couples they're having conflict and like, wow. So, you mean in 17 years of marriage, you've never confronted your husband about a sin? Well, no, I'm not supposed to. I'm supposed to submit to him. Whoa. You mean your husband is perfect? No, he's not. Is he a sinner? Yes. Then he's also a fellow Christian and brother in the Lord and scripture says all over the place, if your brother sins, confront him. He's not exempt from that just because he's your husband. If your, if your husband sins, confront him. If he repents, forgive him. And all those other one another's apply from the wife to the husband. doesn't get a free pass to do whatever he wants to. Um, but I've seen it time and time again. Uh, others have said, taught, believe that women can't talk at a Bible study because of this. I don't believe that's what Paul is saying here. Uh, some also have decided that women can't speak up or talk in a Sunday school class. They're not allowed to ask any questions. They can't be heard. They are to just be seen, not heard. Women can't give a testimony in church in the corporate assembly. I actually was a pastor at a church that believed that, so a woman could never be standing on the stage giving like we did last week. See all those women that were up here behind the microphone talking about Hope House? That's a major violation and blasphemy in some churches, really. Sinful, a violation of Scripture. Even a church that I was a pastor at at one time, that would have been totally illegitimate and unbiblical, but I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. Uh, I pastored a church where the mandate was that women, because of this verse, women can't sing a solo in church. Because in, when you're singing a solo, you're speaking words, you're speaking truth. Uh, many songs are uh, proclamations and expository and commands and whatever, and, therefore, and teaching, and therefore a woman would be teaching. It's just the, through the form of a song, and therefore women should never sing solos in church or actually up on the stage singing even in a choir. So these are extremist views. They're real. Uh, some Christians hold them. They're even in evangelical churches. But this is misapplying what Paul saying in First Corinthians 14. Um, a couple others. Oh, I've heard this one. I, I was a pastor at a church that believed that a woman can't evangelize a man or a male. Uh, also, women can't teach even children in Sunday school class. Because the Sunday school class is usually on the church campus and women aren't allowed to speak in church, therefore they can't teach second grade Sunday school class. I was a pastor at a church that believed that. When I I keep saying I was a pastor at that church. I didn't make up that rule. I just want to clarify. That didn't come from me. I went to churches that already had these in place. And they didn't tell me that in the interview. I found out after I got hired. But anyway... um, and, oh, women can't teach in a Christian school because it's a Christian ministry and legitimate Christian schools are an arm of the church and therefore, by extension, women can't even teach in a Christian school. And women can't run for public office. So a woman can't run be local mayor or senator or congresswoman or vice president or president of the United States. I don't think Paul was talking about that. Uh, so we're going to find out why. So to kind of sort that out, uh, I wanted to review just one hermeneutical principle that we need to be reminded of, and maybe some of you are learning for the first time, and here's the question to sort. How do you sort all this out, Pastor Cliff? Because as I read through the passage and read through my Greek text and doing my own work, and then I go and then I read commentaries after that of men I trust who are always routinely helpful, uh, there were two to three different interpretations, uh, three different piles that the 20 commentaries broke down into, and, and one of them was quite different than the view that I'm going to propose today. And so it comes down to, well, how do we determine what the correct meaning is? I mean, is it just totally unclear? No, we don't believe that. We believe in the clarity of Scripture, the perspicuity of Scripture. Uh, God wants us to understand. He communicated in very simple language so that we could understand. And I think this passage can be understood. There are some things we don't understand because it's limited information. We don't have all the information. That's okay. That's by God's design. So we are silent where Scripture is silent. That's rule of thumb. We are clear where Scripture is clear. And I think there are some things that are clear here, even though there is ambiguity on several other matters in the text. So let's just try to go with what is clear in this passage. Uh, and so here's my question for you. It's kind of a pop quiz, only one question. And that is, uh, how do we determine the meaning of any passage in the Bible? How do we determine the correct meaning? Because there's probably three or four competing views of the commentaries that I read this week that are from good men. So how do we determine the right view or the right meaning? That's the question. And it's not just a scholarly question or a pastor's question or an exit. It's for every Christian because you're supposed to be reading your Bible. As you read your Bible, God wants you to understand it. But there are principles to abide by so you can understand it properly. Because It's very easy to be reading and not understand it or misunderstand it or read a commentary that gives you the wrong interpretation and leads you astray. There's things you need to know, that I need to know, every Christian. And one of the main basic questions is, how do we determine the meaning of any given passage? The meaning. Another way to phrase it is, how do we determine the correct interpretation? Not translation. That's a different matter. There's an order to these. First we do translation. That's a task. And you can have the probably all those scholars that I read all agreed on the translation. 25 out of 25. We agree this is the translation. This is the way it should be translated. But they don't agree on the interpretation of the translation. So that is the question at hand. So hopefully that's one thing that you take away today and you answer this question properly as a Christian. How do we determine the meaning of any given passage in the Bible properly? Here are alternatives that people suggest routinely that are not correct. Some will say, well... Uh, it primarily comes from grammar and syntax. No, no, it doesn't. Interpretation or meaning does not flow immediately from grammar and syntax. Grammar and syntax helps with translation, which comes before interpretation. So, and some people get those out of order. You can't have a proper meaning without proper grammar and syntax, but that's not the correct answer to the question. What is the? How do we determine the ultimate meaning of a passage? It's not from grammar and syntax. Some will say, well, contextualization. That began in the 1970s from the World Council of Churches. That's wrong. If you don't know what that means, that's probably a good thing, so don't worry about it. That is not talking about context. contextualization. All it's saying is don't be objective. Don't worry about what Paul met and said 2,000 years ago. Look at the world around you and see what the world needs and then kind of twist and massage your Bible passage to fit the current needs of the day disregarding what the original author said. That's contextualization. That's wrong. But that's a common answer that would be given. Others would tell us, no, to get the meaning, we need deconstruction. Really? That's postmodernism and all that blah, blah, blah that comes out of liberal universities in the English departments, and that's now crept down into the theological world, the seminaries, the Bible colleges, and now in the churches and in the pews and with Christians, and that is wrong. We don't uh, use deconstruction. If you don't know what that means, that's another good thing. You haven't been brainwashed yet. So uh, probably the most popular answer in the evangelical world today is that we determine the meaning of a passage by the genre. Really, the genre. That's been going strong for 20 years, and it's gaining ground. So the first thing you do is you got to determine whether a passage, what its genre is. Is it narrative? Is it history? Is it poetry? Is it a parable? Is it this? Is it that? Is it allegorical? And then based on that, then you make your interpretation. <clears throat> Wrong answer. Uh, We don't determine meaning by genre. Some will say, well, by cross-referencing and the analogy of faith. No, that isn't how you determine the ultimate meaning of a passage, of any given passage. So here in 1 Corinthians uh, 14, I've read commentaries that believe this. Uh, Because it's kind of a difficult passage, what we need to do is go to other passages, cross-reference, and use the analogy of faith to determine the meaning in this passage. I say, no, "Ah," wrong answer. Cross-referencing is good and legitimate. But it needs to be used in the proper order. You don't use cross-referencing in the analogy of Faith to determine the meaning of a passage at hand. You use cross-referencing as not a positive, but as a negative check to discard illegitimate interpretations of the passage at hand. So cross-referencing is good. It's legitimate. You just got to do it in the right order. It doesn't come up front in the process of exegesis. It's at the very end for checks and balances. For example, uh, the New Testament, the Old Testament, the entire Bible clearly teaches that salvation is by grace apart from works. Can I get an amen? Amen. That is clear from Genesis to Revelation. That is undisputed. It's a priority doctrine. Taught with the greatest of clarity and detail and comprehension. So we know this. So then when you go to James and you're studying that passage and it says... Um, you are saved by works. Whoa, a yellow flag should go up. Boop! Wait a minute. Does James really mean what I think he's saying here? And you try to determine the translation and then the meaning, and yet the entirety of scripture clearly teaches just the opposite. That's how you're using cross-referencing as a check that okay, maybe I'm not understanding uh James here. Maybe one of the words he's using. Uh, has more than one meaning, which happens to be the case, justified. Which means vindicated in Timothy. So it doesn't always mean salvation or regeneration. Very clear. Um, so you didn't get the translation right before you even got to the interpretation. And then cross-referencing. So uh, cross-referencing can be a negative check that, ooh, ah, maybe I didn't do my homework thoroughly. So hopefully uh, that's helpful and then uh others this is very common that people determine the meaning of a passage as they read the passage through the grid of a preconceived theological paradigm that is very dangerous and very common what does that mean well you've got this you've got presuppositions that you're just uh settled on and you're going to hold to and you're not going to compromise and it doesn't matter what the text says or what anybody else says i'm going with this i am a uh I'm a five and a half point Calvinist and I'm going to read every passage accordingly. I'm a one point Calvinist and I'm going to read every passage in the Bible accordingly. I am a charismatic, I'm a Pentecostal and I'm going to read every passage accordingly. I am a cessationist and I am going to read every one. I'm a dispensationalist and I'm going to read every one in accordance with that. And I'm not going to let my system deviate or get holes in it or become leaky or whatever. Because I want to preserve my paradigm and my theological system and my preconceptions and my precepts. can't do that. we got to go to Scripture... And be willing to let the Holy Spirit teach us and sometimes even tweak our thinking, change our thinking, bring our thinking in line with what God's Word truly says. And it might even mean sacrificing one of your old views on the altar of truth. It's like, oh wow, you know what? I've been wrong for 17 years on that. Thank you God for illuminating my understanding. That happens to me actually all the time. That's why I love studying God's Word because it's always fresh and always new and a sign that you're always learning and always growing and none of us have arrived. We all see through a glass dimly. So we've got to be willing to be rebuked by the truth of Scripture because the Scripture is the living Word of God. So we can't be committed to And that's why when people come frequently, this is a fair question actually. When visitors come or people come and they ask you uh, either or through the Internet or on the phone when people inquire about our church, are you a Calvinistic church? Or are you a dispensational church? These are common questions I will get. Or a recent one, are you a Pentecostal church? And I usually don't answer those questions up front. I will usually follow up with the question. <laughs> uh, are you a Pentecostal church? Well, what do you mean by Pentecostal? Well, do you believe in the gifts? Oh, yeah! We're in 1 Corinthians right now. I believe in the gifts. Oh, then you're Pentecostal. Well, not necessarily. Not according to your definition. So you got to clarify and have a conversation. So... Uh, but people often, out of convenience or teaching or tradition or their upbringing or ignorance, operate out of a paradigm as their, their umbrella by which they will conveniently pigeonhole everything. Oh, it's got to fit into my system? No, that's very dangerous. Very common. Don't do that. Um so I, I would reject all of those, uh, although some of those are legitimate. Cross-referencing is legitimate. Grammar and syntax are absolutely necessary to get there eventually. Genre does matter, but not for determining meaning. Some of those are totally illegitimate, like contextualization and deconstruction, blah, blah, blah. So here's the answer. Uh, how do we determine meaning, ultimate meaning in any given Bible passage? It's real simple. It's the context. It's the context. That's it. The immediate context of the passage, and then you just start going... Concentric circles all the way out till you get to Genesis one one and Revelation twenty two eighteen or whatever it is. Context, context, context determines meaning. So with that background and maybe some guides, this I guarantee this is going to help us in understanding what in the world Paul is talking about. So let's go back to First Corinthians fourteen and all I want to do is set up some parameters, pillars of the immediate context, and then after we do that, then we'll look at trying to determine a meaning of this imperative by the way the only imperative it's not women keep silent is not the only imperative in this passage people lose focus there there are all kinds of imperatives or commands in other areas uh several of them are to men and actually most of them are to men and women and all believers they're not just singling out women here the apostle paul so what is the let's look at uh now with knowing that context determines meaning of any given bible passage let's go to 1 corinthians 14 what is the context of this command uh, and let me read the whole thing The women are to keep silent. I'm going to add some context to that. Silent all the time, everywhere, about everything? Ah, No. Let's add context. Let's read further on. The women are to keep silent in the churches. Oh, okay. At the corporate gatherings, at the formal assemblies. As Paul uses that word early on in 1 Corinthians 14. When you come together, he said in 1 Corinthians 11. And then in chapter 14, when you assemble as a church, here's the guidelines, here's the decorum, here's the protocol. So that's setting context and limitations. Of when the women are supposed to keep silence. Not all the time everywhere. You can tell your husband what you think the color of the carpet should be at your house. After all, you're the queen of the home. At least that's what I believe. At least that's what my pastor told me when I got married. You better let your wife make all the decisions at home about the furniture and all that. And that was, that was wise counsel. Cause I know how I lived when I was a bachelor. Um, so the context. Uh, chapter 14, the context is about prophecy and tongues. The entire chapter of 14 is about prophecy and tongues. We know that from verse 1 and 2 of chapter 14, where he says prophecy, and then in verse 2, tongues. In the entire chapter, he's talking about that. So the command for women are to keep silent in the churches needs to be with respect to the public assembly in the local church when you're talking about thinking through doing, practicing the gifts of prophecy and tongues. That is the context. Last verse of chapter 14. Verse 40. He sums up the context. But all things must be done properly. Oh, before that, verse 39. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. There it is. Prophecy, which he mentioned in the first verse. And do not forbid speaking in tongues. That's Those are the bookends. That's the context. So don't misuse that command about women need to be quiet all the time about everything. No. It's in the public assembly of the local church with respect to the use of the gifts of prophecy and tongues. And we already said Clearly, in First Corinthians thirteen, where Paul predicted prophetically that tongues would pass away, and, or pass away, and, and tongues, or prophecy would pass away, tongues would cease. Prophecy is ongoing direct revelation, which we do not have today. We have it written down in the Bible. We don't have prophets giving direct revelation in our churches today. The church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. There are no prophets giving direct revelation today. So that even. Uh, affects our application of this truth today in our local church. We don't have prophecy today. We don't have tongues today in light of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. Tongues was a prophetic gift or a revelatory gift, giving direct revelation. We don't have direct revelation today. It's all final. It's right here in the Bible. That is the bigger context. So understand this command in light of uh, the gifts of prophecy and tongues. Uh, other contextual matters. Look at, you could divide this chapter into Two parts that'll help you set the context. Verses one through twenty-five is actually a theology—theology theology of tongues and prophecy. The theology. Twenty-six through forty is the procedure, not the theology, but let's say the methodology. So twenty-six through forty is the methodology of how to do prophecy and tongues in the local assembly. One through twenty-five is the theology explaining it. The principles of it, and then 26 through 40 is the practice of those principles. So that's the context of 26 through 40. The procedure and methodology of how you do and implement someone with the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy in the local church if indeed that gift is being revealed by God. Um, And this is probably one of the key verses to the context of what was going on. Paul was writing to fix a problem. And... So the bigger context actually is chapter 12, 13 and 14. You can't read 14 verse 4 uh, chapter 14 verse 34 the women are to keep silent in the churches and just pull it out of context. It needs to be understood also in light of chapter 12, chapter 13 and chapter 14 which is a unit of thought addressing a specific issue that the Corinthians they had a major problem in the public assembly and that's why Paul is going to great length like to straighten this out. What was the essence of the problem? Chapter 14, verse 26, gives Paul summarizes the essence of the problem that he's dealing with in chapter 12, 13, and 14, and then in chapter 34 is part of the solution. Well, what was the problem? Look at verse 26. This is think about this and apply it to today. If this happened uh, when you're driving in your car or going to church, I wonder what's going to happen at GBF today. I wonder who's singing. I wonder who's preaching. I wonder what we're going to do. Are we going to uh, have prayer? Blah, you know, who's giving their gifts and that kind of, in the corporate assembly? Well, here's what the Corinthians were thinking as they're walking or riding their chariot to their local church at somebody's house at the public assembly, here's what was going on. Uh, Verse 26, what is the outcome then, brethren? Paul just kind of takes a break. And he says, here's what's going on. When you assemble, when you come together as a church, let me remind you, this is what's going on. Each one of you has a song, a song to sing. It's not just Austin and the music team. It's everybody who wants to is coming with the song. No, I want to sing. No, I want to sing. No, I want to sing. No, Christian musicians being competitive with one another. No, that never happens. No, it was happening right here. Everybody had a song, they wanted to sing their song, and some of them were probably long songs, some of them were probably theologically inaccurate. And he says, each one of you has a song. It's good to sing in church, it's good to have a soloist in church, but realistically, practically, in terms of proper decorum and reverence to God, respect for the people, everybody can't come and just plan on singing their solo. We'll be here all day long. And apparently the Corinthians decided, well, you know what? I'm not going to take turns and wait in line. I don't care if he's singing. I'm going to sing mine now. And they did. They had people going at the same time. There's a solo over there and a trio over there and a quartet over there and some singing over here and hooting and hollering over here. So you can imagine just the cacophony of noise and disorder that was deafening. And that's why Paul said, you got unbelievers visiting. And they're like, you Christians, you are kooky, cuckoo, cuckoo, frightening, scary because of the lack of order and reverence. And total lack of deference for one another. Lack of courtesy. So people are, each one of you has a song. Each one of you has a teaching. I wonder if Pastor Cliff is the preacher today. Well, that wasn't going on at Corinth. It was like, I wonder how many people think they're going to stand up and try to teach at the same time. Including the teenagers and junior hires who think they know everything. That'll be interesting. But apparently that was going on in Corinth. More than one teacher. There was no order. Uh, people just, uh, wanted the limelight. They weren't into edification. They were into exhibitionism. There's a difference. Not edification, but exhibition. And that was their priority. To be showy, to be showing off. Each one of you, man, you have it. we got people uh, lined up. They're going to sing a solo. We got other people teaching and who want to teach. And there are people who want to teach who shouldn't be teaching. That happens all the time. We need to rein that in. And then uh, there are (laughs) several of you. Each one of you has a revelation. That's a generic term for direct revelation, which included those who had the gift of prophecy. And there were many. He's explicit about that where he, he reigns it in and says, you know what? We can't have more than two to three people giving up prophecies on Sunday. Apparently, the Corinthians had many, many, many more than that. Who knows how many? we got 15, 17 people standing up giving prophecies. That is chaotic. That needs to stop. So with revelation, that's direct revelation, which includes those who think they're prophets, those who speak in tongues, those who interpret tongues, those who think they have the word of knowledge, those who think they have the word of wisdom. Those were all verbal gifts of divine revelation that fall under this umbrella. And Paul says, each one of you are are doing this. You've got mass hysteria and chaos going on in the public assembly. Nobody's taking turns. There's no order. There's no printed bulletin. There was no rehearsal. Uh, not only that, uh, each one has a tongue, each one has an interpretation. So for sure we know from the context that there are way too many people thinking there were prophets speaking up and talking, saying, thus saith the Lord, and they're just going on. And then there were definitely way too many people who think they had the gift of tongues, uh, speaking in tongues. And s- several of them were doing it without an interpreter, which he already said that's totally illegitimate. Don't do that. So that's the pro- so it, what is, what is Paul trying to do? He's trying to deal with mass chaos in the public assembly. Now, one thing he doesn't do, which is a beautiful balance, he doesn't say, just stop it all, knock it off, don't do any of that. He doesn't say that. He just wants to bring discipline and order. Paul believes that uh, there should be participation from the saints in the corporate worship assembly. It's a beautiful thing. He acknowledges these, these gifts are legitimate. There were prophets in the church that needed to speak up and give direct revelation to the church. There were those who were gifted with the gift of tongues who needed to get up and speak from God so that all the people might be edified with the direct revelation that that provided. So, But what he's trying to do is rein it in, emphasizing edification, because he says that about five times in this chapter. He highlights that uh, truth in verse 26, the end of verse 26. Let all be done for edification. Build up other saints. And he, So that's one of the main tasks. We've got to change the focus and the motive so that we are uh, deliberately edifying other people through edification, not exhibition of self. And the other main priority he has is he's trying to rein it in and bring order and reverence and decorum and respect because that is what God deserves from his people, not chaos. And that's verse 40. Summary point, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. We need to do things at church in an orderly manner, a proper manner. Don't confuse that with wrong things like legalism. We need to be done properly. Therefore, we need to be legalistic. No, or you can't have joy. You can't smile. You can't be enthusiastic. You can't be emo. No, those are not synonymous. We would always have great, exuberant joy. We should be the most joyful people of all when we go to worship with God's people to worship our great God and Savior. So, gotta be careful with that. So, those are his two goals. So, with that in mind, that Paul's main goals are to we got to reign in the chaos. Don't want to squelch or undermine the moving of the Spirit in God's people. But at the same time, we need to refocus so that we are doing things to edify the saints corporately as a body. And also that God is honored through some order that we establish in how we do things. And that's exactly what he does, verses 34 through 40. So let's go ahead. I've got three points there uh, to Paul's. And and this is an ongoing discussion. Three points there. First one is verses 34 to 35. Point number one in establishing order and the right emphasis of edification for all the saints is the propriety for women in corporate worship. Paul addresses the propriety of women in corporate worship. What is that? Submission. Submission. Relative to the outworking of the gift of prophecy and speaking in tongues and the interpretation of tongues in the public assembly, submission in that specific area. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about you and your husband at home in the kitchen and you want to make this for dinner and he insists no, we're having this and you don't have a right and you don't have a say as a wife. That's not what this is talking about. So again, we are restrained by the immediate context. Um, The propriety of women and they need to have a submissive attitude. By the way, I believe the women addressed in verse 34 are wives. And apparently they are at church with their husbands, so you're dealing with a believing married couple here. He's not dealing with the exceptions, so don't ask me about the exceptions. Paul doesn't deal with the exception. These are married people who are at church together in the corporate assembly. And what is the context for these women? They Well, the command is that the women or the wives are to keep silent in the churches with respect to the public assembly at church, with respect to the gift of prophecy being done and the interpretation of tongues uh, and also the judgment that was to be rendered regarding a prophecy that was given. In chapter 12, verse 10, remember Paul was delineating spiritual gifts. One of the spiritual gifts was the distinguishing of spirits. That's not just general discernment. Is discernment a spiritual gift? No. I already preached on that. Is distinguishing of spirits a spiritual gift that is distinct? Yes. What is that? We already talked about it. Distinguishing of spirits was a spontaneous gift and ability from God through the power of the Holy Spirit to assess and discern a prophet who speaks up in the assembly right there on the spot spontaneously. So if somebody gets up and says, thus saith the Lord, and they give a prophecy, then hopefully somebody in the audience had this gift of discerning of spirits and could assess, you know what? What he just said is inconsistent with what God has revealed in the Old Testament, or what God has revealed through the apostles that we know of, or what... Uh, my understanding of this through the gift of the Holy Spirit as I have this gift so uh, that was a spiritual gift that was supposed to complement and keep this supposed gift of prophecy in check and by the way the corinthians were totally out of control when it came to prophets they had too many who thought they were doing it and even legitimate ones there were too many speaking up in a corporate worship service and paul has to rein it in and so uh, from the con that's what he's talking about for revelation so look at your bible first corinthians 14 verse twenty nine I believe the context from verse 29 down to verse 35 is about prophecy being spoken in the public assembly and then those who are commanded to judge, assess, discern whether that prophecy was true or not. So look at verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak, not 17 like you Corinthians have. Let two or only two or three prophets speak and then let others pass judgment. Those with the spiritual gift mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, 10, the discerning of spirits to see if what the prophet spoke was true or false. And you publicly tell the people, Amen, what the brother speaks, what the sister speaks, is true. By the way, could a woman prophet speak in the public assembly of the church? Yes. Paul already said that in 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, 1-16, Paul said, Let the women who are gifted with the true gift of speaking in tongues or praying, I believe praying in tongue, which is a revelatory gift, or women who have the gift of prophecy, if God gives them a prophecy to speak in the public assembly, they are to do it with their head covered to maintain the status of submission to the male leadership in the church as God has ordained. But the women could speak in the public assembly. That's right there in First Corinthians 15. Paul is not going to contradict himself categorically three chapters later. So that's probably the main reason why we know... Uh, those 12 interpretations were wrong because Paul already said that while women can speak under certain conditions in the public assembly, prophecy was one of them. Acts 21 says that Philip had four daughters who were prophetesses. They had to speak up somewhere giving divine revelation. And so verse 29, 1 Corinthians 14, let two or three prophets speak. Let the others pass judgment or discern to see whether, the, whether what they're saying is true, who have the gift of uh, judging, discerning spirits, Now, it could be that some of these who thought they had the gift of judging the prophets may have been some women or some wives or some outspoken wives. One of the problems at Corinth in the assembly was they had some overly liberated, outspoken, opinionated women who were Christians. Probably a carryover from the culture in which they lived. There was a huge... When did feminism begin? Some might say, 1960s. No. Actually, feminism was around before that. We know from history there was a very strong feministic movement in the Roman Empire, in the pagan city of Corinth, in the Greek culture, probably more strong and dominant than what we have even today in our culture. So feminism didn't begin in the 1960s. It actually began in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. From the very beginning, it's part of the curse. And so probably some of these Corinthian women who got saved, then they probably were outspoken and very liberated in an illegitimate manner before they became a Christian. Then they get saved. They haven't learned yet. They haven't grown. They haven't matured. And so they have to be taught and they have to be reined in of the proper hierarchy of authority between roles of men and women and males and females. And so we have women who are speaking up too much in an illegitimate manner, in a disrespectful, non-submissive manner in the assembly. We know that from 1 Corinthians 11 and 14. And Paul's already established the biblical principle in 1 Corinthians 11 where he quoted from the law Genesis chapter 3. 1 through 3, actually. Where he established the principle of the roles of men and women and the authority of the husband over the wife. And it was based on creation. Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. That's the law. So he refers to the law here in this passage. He doesn't quote a verse, but he's referring back to Genesis, clearly. God created Adam first, then the woman. That was by design. Man was to be the leader. He came first. God created a woman to compliment and help the man, to be a helper. That's her role, that is her function, to help the man who is the leader. That's by design. It's not cultural. That's what Paul means here when he says, by the law, in accordance with the law. Man is the leader, wife is the helper, the compliment, uh, the wife is to be submissive. Those are all, uh, rudimentary and even clear in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, so that's what Paul's referring to. Um, and so you got some women in Corinth who obviously they're violating that, either out of ignorance or just sheer rebellion and being alone. Probably most commentators say the following, and I agree with this. That So you've got some prophets in this assembly, say uh Prophet McManus or Prophet whoever, Prophet Leroy, we'll call him Prophet Leroy, he's a member of GBF. He gets up and he says, Thus saith the Lord. And Prophet Leroy gives uh, a prophecy. And then Mrs. Leroy is there. And she hears what her husband says, and then she gets up, and she starts just interrogating her husband. Well, what about this? And what about that? I can't believe you said this. And really, is that? And so you got this wife who is uh, maybe thinking she's exercising your gift of discerning of spirits, but actually what she's doing publicly, she's embarrassing her husband. And that's not helpful or edifying. And maybe she's doing it sincerely and legitimately, and she's asking questions to clarify because she wants to learn. And Paul says, you know what, wife? Wow, don't do that to your husband. Publicly, if you're really sincere and you want to follow up with your hubby, why don't you ask him at home because you live with him. And let others who have this gift verify whether what he spoke was of God or not. I believe that is the context. That's what's going on. That's even the terminology and phraseology that Paul uses. So let's go ahead and look at it. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak. Let others pass judgment or use their gift to discern what uh, was spoken by the prophet were true. Verse 30, but if a revelation is made to another one, who is seated, another prophet gets a spontaneous revelation. Then the first prophet needs to sit down and let the spontaneous prophet get up and speak. Um, And verse 30 says, the first one must keep silent. The first prophet, verse 31, for you can all prophesy one by one. You all meaning those who have the legitimate gift of prophecy and no more than two or three. We're stopping after three. And you need to do it in proper order. We already talked about that. Uh, Those of you who have the gift, you go in order one at a time, no more than three, for the purpose so that all may learn. All may learn. That's the goal. It's not some wife who just wants to learn and all she cares about is herself. She wants to learn. He says, if you want to learn, lady, then learn at home if you're sincere about your questions. But you're detracting, you're interrupting the, the prophecy of the prophet, you're interrupting the service, and you're humiliating your husband. So if you do want to learn and you're sincere, then ask your husband about it when you get home. In the meantime, Let's have those who have this legitimate gift of discerning verify whether this prophet speaks truth or not. Um, All may learn and all may be exhorted, verse 32, and the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion but of peace and in all the churches of the saints. So this wasn't just an issue with the Corinthians. This was universal. Universal. This was standard. So going back to verse 34. So the women... Wives are to keep silent in the churches, and I think from, notice, women aren't the only ones to, told to keep silent. And that's what, I, I don't think I found a commentary that I read that actually made this, the following point I'm about to make. That women aren't the only ones to be silent in the churches in this passage. Let the women keep silent. Look, go back to verse 29. He must keep silent in the church. He, that's a man. What if I just read that out of context? Men keep silent in the church what it says so it's not just women told to be silent verse 28 says there are some men in the church that need to close their mouth men need to be or uh, he would include it's men and women but it includes men and that is if there's if somebody's speaking in tongues and there's no interpreter then that person speaking in tongues needs to keep silent in the church it's the exact same phrase used for women and somebody else that needs to keep silent verse 30 a prophet needs to keep silent if there's already been three prophecies given or if somebody else has one spontaneously, then that prophet needs to sit down, be quiet, and keep silent. So there it is. There's three categories of people with the same uh, command to be silent, not just women. So that's what I mean by context. I can't believe that 1 Corinthians 14.34 says that women need to keep silent in the church. Well, it does say that, and it says there are certain men that need to keep silent in the church too. And certain prophets and certain people with the gift of tongues and certain interpreters. So a lot of people need to keep silent. As a matter of fact, there are six, seven different categories of people that need to keep silent in the church, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 14. Those who had a song and shouldn't be singing, those who had uh, all those other things that they were bringing, the word of knowledge and all that stuff. A lot of those people just need to be quiet and be silent. So it's not just not just picking on women. So the women are to keep silent in the churches in this area of discerning prophecy that is given spontaneously, specifically the wives, so that they're not demeaning their husbands publicly, for they are not permitted to speak in this manner. I think that still applies, that the wife, she shouldn't be speaking this way. She shouldn't be doing this in church. Uh, she is to subject herself to who? To her husband. That's the basic biblical principles. Wives, submit to your husband. It's not, hey lady, submit to every other guy you see. You, you submit to very few people in this direct manner. It's to your husband, to authorities, to your pastor, to the policeman. So there's a limitation of that. So this isn't, be, women need to submit to every man in the church. It's not what it's saying. I think it's wives. Submit to your husband, just as the law also says, which I already talked about in 1 Corinthians 11, which came from Genesis chapter 1 through 3. I believe that's what Paul means. Verse 35, if they desire to learn anything, if these wives who are questioning and interrogating their husbands who are prophets publicly and shaming them, if the wife is sincere and actually is doing this because she wants to learn, the lady needs to keep in mind that we've already established the principle that we're doing all this so that everyone can learn, not just you. It's corporate edification. But for her desire to learn is a good thing. So he doesn't just blow them off. He says, you know what, see if you can learn that at home. And then as a result, we'll have edification for everybody else. who aren't, They're not distracted. And also we have order. Accomplishing his two main goals. Verse 35, if the wives desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. And that doesn't mean that, uh, and I've seen this as well. Some people take this and say, well, my husband has to know everything about everything when I get home about the Bible. No, that is not what it's saying. I learned from my wife. All the time. It's not saying uh, you can't study anything on your own, learn anything on the Bible on your own or like that. It's, I think it's specifically related to this issue of the prophecy that was given publicly in the assembly and the wife wants to inquire as to what was stated or said. and She's going to ask her husband at home and the reason she can ask him is because he was directly involved and used by God in the transaction. That's why he can have the answer. This doesn't mean you can't think for yourself, wife, and every Bible question you want, you need to ask your husband at home. There are plenty of wives who know certain things or even more things about the Bible than their husband, really. I remember the biggest argument my wife and I ever got, and ooh, should I have said that? Can I reveal that to you? Well, she's not here today, so I'll tell you. It was, oh, this is a true story. And we weren't married yet, but we were engaged, and it was a debate over who wrote the book of Hebrews. Seriously, to this day, it's one of the worst arguments we ever had. I'm not going to tell you the outcome of it, but we're still married. After 26 years. Don't tell Debbie I said that. Hope this is not recorded. But anyway. (laughs) So let's go back to this principle and I'm gonna, I don't wanna rush because this is so important because there's part two actually to this imperative in verses 34 and 35 that I gotta address next time that affects our culture and that everybody wants to know. And that's the the role of men and women and the issue and how does that apply today and, uh, there's too much to be said and we can't rush it. We've gotta settle that matter. Uh, but I wanna first deal very specifically with, with, according to the context, what I think Paul was specifically addressing in the context at Corinth. And there are principles from that that do apply to us today, even though I believe prophecy is no more. We have prophecy right here. Scripture is called prophecy, by the way. Did you know that? In First Peter, or in Peter, and also in Revelation. So written scripture is called prophecy. So we do have prophecy. It's right here. We don't have ongoing, spontaneous, direct revelation of prophecy anymore. So I would say that issue is a moot point we don't have to deal with that in this day and age. And I would say the same about speaking in tongues, but primarily what Paul's talking about is prophecy that was given spontaneously and those who were discerning and judging what was said. That is the main issue in verse 34 and 35. And the wives had a proper place of what was appropriate and what was not. Um, so we'll leave it at that. And also just a practical takeaway for us today until we finish this passage in part two of point number one. Uh, and that is we need to just be reminded that when we use our spiritual gifts, we do it in the context of love. It's interesting. Three times in the New Testament where gifts are addressed, primarily. Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12-14, through and Romans 12. And in every one of those main passages about spiritual gifts, the apostle also brings up as a dominant theme, love because all of our gifts and the way they're utilized need to be fueled and motivated by love and deference for our fellow believers. So edification of the saints. And then the second point that we can apply to our own church life is doing things decently and in an orderly manner in a way that pleases God, because we want it to be pleasing to him, really an act of worship. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.